Welcome to Material Feels, a monthly podcast where we listen in on the intimate conversations between artists and their materials. Each episode, we spend time with people who connect with a specific material every day. Artists, educators, makers. In episode one, we explored a children's clay studio with art educator Matthew Duke. We talked about clay's different personalities. We came to terms with the emotional growth clay kind of demands from us. And being in the clay studio gave us a chance to reconnect with our vulnerable, tender creative sides. We also smashed some stuff. You know what these are? Don't smash these because they're mine. I made them. Yeah, no, this is, I would only ever smash my own pot. That was so satisfying. (laughs) Then we took to the road with weaver Danielle Garber and got a feel for fiber discovering how a fleece is spun into yarn at the Valley Oak wool mill. We slowed down a bit. We took time to remember those who came before us, whether or not they claimed the title artist. Last episode, we reconnected with our living spaces during the first month of shelter in place in the Bay Area. We learned more about wood in the context of furniture design with Dominique Tutwiler. We discovered an opportunity to think about how we live we took a walk in the woods. Matthew, Danielle, and Dominique are all creative makers who are deeply engaged with their respective materials. Clay, wood, wool. I've had some listeners call them unconventional artists, and maybe they are, and that's great. I want to expand our understanding of who an artist can be while honoring creative impulses and learning more about the materials that make up our world. Honoring different kinds of artists leads us to new ideas about materials, too. A lot of people are asking me, well, when are you going to do paint or paper? And that's a fair question, but I'm starting to see all these incredible materials around me, and I'm getting so curious about the creative flow that I'm starting to be aware of that's pulsing through practically everything we touch. This episode, we'll be exploring the craft of bartending with a creative who builds recipes and serves craft cocktails like it's an intricate and intimate dance. With each drink, the artist distills layers and layers of history and blends them into the present moment, all the while filling us with a sense of possibility. But first, the housekeeping. Material Feels is written and produced by your host, me, Katherine Monahan. Each episode is accompanied by an original piece of music at the very end, a song created just for the show by my collaborator, Liz DeLise. How can we get back to where we were? You can listen to Liz's song separately on her Bandcamp, which is linked to in the show notes. You can also follow Liz on Instagram, at Liz DeLise. L-I-Z-D-E-L-I-S-E to hear their new music and see some pretty incredible quarantine-inspired live streams. Subscribe to Material Feels with whatever podcast app you use on your phone. The show is also on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play. You can also listen at www.materialfeelspodcast.com where you will find show notes, photos, and additional resources. At the moment, Material Feels is a labor of love. Here's the best way to support the show. Follow it on Instagram, at Material Feels, share it with your friends, and review it on iTunes. I've gotten such wonderful feedback and wonderful reviews, and I just want to thank my listeners so much. 
I can feel your presence when I'm when I'm making this. So it's a two-way street. <laughs> All right, let's catch the feels for our next material. Cheers. Cheers. Zivoli. Yes, yes, yes. Salud, salud, salud. I'm Redwood Hill, and I am an interpretive uh, service provider in myriad form. And what's your material? Uh, my materials are ice, spirits, paints, and words. Tell me what got you into bartending. I just had a scene flash through my head of of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Do you know that movie? Um, I think I know the music. It's it's a Tennessee Williams play. Paul Newman plays a character named Brick, and he has clearly suffered some kind of grief or loss, and he is being raised in this super privileged, rich Southern family, and that comes clearly with a burden for someone as sensitive as Paul Newman's character called Brick. But he drinks like a fish, right? And there's this like pivotal line that he that he offers to to us as the audience, and then definitely to Liz Taylor, who plays his wife, when she's asking him why he's trying to drink himself, you know, to death. It seems like he's trying to drink himself to death. He keeps pouring whiskey over ice in this super hot New Orleanian setting, and and he goes, "I'm just waiting for the hot light to go off and the cool light to." Turn on. I got a switch. Click it off in my hand. Turns a hot light off in the cool one. When I think about bartending and and you know the myri the myriad places that I've worked and um and how long I've kind of accidentally devoted myself to this craft, that comes to me every now and again. The hot light is like to me that's stress, and the cool light is like flow. But I'm curious to hear your take on that. It just comes to me um, because. I think there is an innate caution to um, in that movie about Brick's reliance on alcohol and how he's using it to cope and mask. Um, but towards the end, we discover that the hot light is mendacity and the cool light is candor and honesty. Mendacity in Tennessee Williams vernacular is a bunch of lies. We cut to me being... <laughs> somehow abstractly influenced by this movie um, in, in, my, in this kind of like, you know, spirally chaotic path to craft bartending. But what I understood once I moved to the Bay Area was A, bartending was a, a viable position. Uh, it, was a, it was a way that I could afford to live here if I was able to, to achieve a certain skill set within, um, with, within the practice of, of making cocktails. I was drawn to the financial viability of craft cocktailing in the Bay um, because of the confoundingly low wages in Chicago and New York, um, which is where I bit my teeth in the, you know, I wouldn't say in the craft cocktailing industry, but I would definitely say in the like fast-paced, high-volume bar industry where I began as a bar back underage and, you know, we would make $2.33 an hour and barbacks, which was my starting position, we had to do all the grunt work and we usually received the lowest percentage of, of the tip pool. 
Redwood found craft cocktailing through a blend of circumstance and necessity. Moving to the Bay from Chicago, she tapped into a niche world that offered both creative license and a livable wage. Most of us are submerged in the currents of capitalism. The pressure to make a living either prevents us from fully committing to a material, or if we are fortunate, our job might present us with an opportunity to explore. Spirits were not always Redwood's passion. In fact, she nurses many creative relationships. I've always been, I guess, a bit timid about some of my more academic, artistic aspirations. And so this seemed like a good place to kind of couch my creative desire to engage with folks and to create things that people are not only interacting with, but they're also ingesting. I think I convinced myself at some point I had to sacrifice some component of myself and the selves that are creatives. You know, I thought that's what it meant to be an adult. And that's essentially the most powerful narrative about Restaurant Opportunity Center is like, there's a lot of folks that were like, I came to the restaurant industry or the bar industry hoping to make enough money to, to get by, to pay rent, to pay my bills. And then I discovered perhaps a passion in some regard. You know, some folks discover a passion and enthusiasm for serving and hosting other folks. You know, they start out dishwashing, they end up on the line, they become cooks. And for me, I think the bar offered a lot of opportunities for me to explore things that were really intimidating and that I felt locked out from uh, to some extent being, you know, this kind of uh, queer, not immediately identifiable person in a lot of ways. Can you do me a favor and just describe yourself? <laughs> Mm -hmm. What makes you not identifiable? I think that I straddle a lot of bases representationally. I am female-bodied. I'm Black-identified. I don't really fully uh, corroborate gender. I don't like. I don't identify as trans or gender queer per se. I just don't really relate to the functions of gender as a category. Um, and I've I don't I've deviated from the roles of my gender. To gently acknowledge that not all of us are couched in progressive language and Bay Area culture, this might be a bit of a confusing conversation for some listeners. Maybe because you aren't really sure about the terms. Genderqueer, trans, gender identity. Take genderqueer, for instance. As someone who identifies as genderqueer, sometimes even I have trouble explaining it with a textbook answer. The first hurdle is going to be the understanding that gender is fluid. So instead of either male or female, instead of this or that, Think of gender as a spectrum. Genderqueer people do not subscribe to conventional genders. We might identify as neither, both, or a combination of male and female genders. We might paint our nails and grow out our facial hair, or wear a binder under our button-downs while applying lipstick. And we might not even present as genderqueer, we just know we are, and that's enough. So for the folks who would prefer us to check a box and stay in that box, that definition doesn't typically cut it. And having the time, space, and energy for a long, in-depth conversation about our genders every day, coming out over and over again, it's exhausting. Categorization, or sorting people into boxes. It's also a violent strategy that is more often than not used to control, confine, and abuse. And maybe that's why some level of ambiguity can sometimes work to your advantage. 
I also have, I think, the privilege of like an ethnic ambiguity, despite my black identity. Um, I initially present some puzzlement for folks, but then there's something kind of, I felt that that puzzlement has been in some ways tokenized. Um, sometimes it's been exploited. Um, sometimes it's been positioned to offer an image of diversity or inclusion. I think, I think my appearance functions as this double edge or triple or quadruple edge perhaps, um, mm. especially because I think that from my emotional and uh, psychological standpoint, categorization is so harmful. Right. Um, the invention of category has, has, has functioned primarily as a self-destructive and misanthropic um, mechanism amongst us humans. Um, to control people and... Yeah, to control them, to marginalize them, and to cause deep generational trauma. Um, I think the inventions of gender and race, you know, they, they, were, uh, they were contrived with very specific perpetual intention. And, um, and I think, and when I think about my own relationship to that and how important it was for me to feel like either I was being included in this industry or like I was creating a space for myself, like, and, and my relationship to that now where I could kind of not give a damn probably for uh, strenuous reasons. Um, it might seem off topic that we're spending so much time talking about identity, race, gender, but the dynamics and identity politics that play out across the bar throughout history in relation to spirits, these dynamics are tied to the material at hand. Redwood has been working in the Bay Area as a bartender for over a decade. She's an instructor at the Restaurant Opportunity Center, or ROC, a nonprofit organization fighting to improve wages and working conditions for restaurant workers throughout the United States. ROC provides free job training and professional development for restaurant workers. The local Bay Area chapter is located in the Restore Oakland building in Fruitvale. Redwood is a bartending instructor there and throughout Shelter in Place has been creating and facilitating content for online learning. Once businesses begin to reopen, Rock will be opening a restaurant called Colors, which will offer hands-on job training and access to livable wage jobs in the restaurant industry for communities of color. So I'd been working in uh, the Bay Area for, I think, probably about 12 or, or, or 13 years. Um, and I'd been working, you know, with a small contingency of other one-ofs, primarily women of color, um, all cis women, with, my, with the exception of myself, um, and each of us were kind of one ofs in uh, in these bars that were at the the so-called forefront of craft cocktailing in the Bay Area, in Oakland specifically. So being introduced to rock, uh, I, I guess about three years ago, it seemed like folks were collectivizing and organizing around these conversations we were having around the disparity and the... Um, discriminations we were experiencing in the in our positions as as barkeeps um and then something also kind of magical started to happen where you know in tandem with the me too movement all of a sudden folks were starting to hold these restaurateurs accountable for this grisly behavior that has been validated as appropriate for primarily in my experience cis gendered, white, heteronormative men. Cisgender means that you identify with the sex you were assigned at birth. 
If you have further questions about this, Google is a great tool. Hetero is a cute little term us homos use for heterosexuals. Some of us are familiar with the feeling of being the only one in the room. Maybe you're the only one in your friend group sending money home to your parents. Maybe you're the only visibly queer person at work and the feeling of alienation is real. Some of us are not as familiar with this feeling. We are comfortable much of the time and that is a privilege. Because we might be used to feeling comfortable, we might feel a little uneasy hearing about these dynamics. If you're starting to feel uncomfortable listening right now, that's okay. Sit with that feeling and try not to let it turn to guilt. See if it can turn into curiosity, concern, and most importantly, understanding. I'm not trying to sound patronizing, uh, but I do think that it takes time and energy to form understanding. And it's really important that we make a concerted effort. And if you're on episode four of Material Feels, I know you are of the curious sort anyway, so you're doing great. So what makes a craft cocktail a craft? It's in the details. The recipe that is carefully built, the way it is presented, served, and enjoyed, even the flora and fauna of the particular region where the liquor used is distilled. For instance, the kind of gin Redwood had in her kit the day we met up for our interview. A large component of gin production is predicated upon the, uh, the botanicals and herbs that are used to flavor it. And in this case, they use the surrounding herbs and plants of Mount Tam to really invoke a setting. Um, and that is what the flavor is dedicated to. So you get Douglas fir, you get bay laurel, you get, you know, a bit of pe pink peppercorn, all the things that would grow on your way to, to Mount Tam. There is a fine art to the performance of preparing the drink, for instance. Um, I like that play of citrus sweet and yeah. briny salt, mm. um, and I want to bring it to you. And then if I do this and then garnish your cocktail with a um, with an orange peel, and usually I kind of rush through it, but this is how I typically garnish with citrus. In the middle of making this drink, Redwood pauses with an orange rind, folding it so citrus mists the lip, body, and stem of the glass. She hovers around the drink like casting some kind of spell, and then, satisfied that citrus has misted the entire vessel, drops it in. And then I usually, before I serve it, I'll come all the way around and even here, so that everywhere you go, you pick it up. And then the, in so your entire like... Then there is the experience of enjoying it, which ties it all together. This moment is what drives Redwood to create. When you take a sip of a drink that you're proud of, like what does it feel like in your body? Oh man, I'm my own worst enemy, so that uh, that is a really good question. I, I, I'd use the adjective bright, perhaps. It is filling. You know, there's a, um, a satisfaction at even the premise of pleasing someone else with it, that someone else might might enjoy it as much as I do. That's really, that's that's a strong pull there. But that. what does that feel like in the body? I think that feels like desire. So what is a craft cocktail experience? This is sort of a trendy phrase, but it's not a new concept. The art of mixing drinks has gone through changes every decade, every century actually. Alcohol has been around for thousands of years. It started out as fermenting, fermented fruit, fermented grain, 
Uh, and then distilling came into the picture. There's gin, there's rum, there's vodka. And every evolution of a single cocktail made with those liquors is an anthropological case study in and of itself. Then there are the tools for bartending, which are as diverse and dynamic as the tools in a fine art studio. Hawthorne strainer, fruit peeler. I have some coupes and some Nick and Nora glasses here. I have Japanese whiskey, chocolate, Angostura, and orange bitters, organic cane sugar. I have pimento olives and Gibson onions. Um, I have London dry gin and um, an Italian dry vermouth and uh, an orange to, to garnish. I was curious about not only the material and where the materials come from, but also the moment of making the drink and serving the drink. I asked Redwood about the relationship between herself and the person on the other side of the bar. The thing that I think really started to, I guess, invite me to the, those idiosyncrasies and those nuances was, I think, the, like the function of alcohol and distilled spirits in, in my communities historically. And then I started to try to reconcile a reality of how um, most spirits are produced and who owns the, the product of that labor. When you say the function, like, do you mean as a negative thing? Like, oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. There's, so, such yeah. A, there's such a long shadow cast in Black and Native communities and Irish communities. Like, every single kind of genetic representation of mine, I think there's, there, there's this, like, this lingering darkness associated with, you know, alcoholism and addiction and the powerlessness associated, but then that's juxtaposed with who's actually producing these spirits. Mm. And then that's, you know, and then that is thwarted by who owns the profits of that. And that was when I started to really, I think, look in the key of listening. That kind of became a locus of my menu writing, of my instruction mm. is like, placing into context not just our present experience with distilled beverages and craft cocktails and like the seeminess of it, but also the historical like encasement of that. And it's interesting that alcohol is this like place and the bar is a place of community or like unleashing and also numbing problems. Mm -hmm. And we ingest it, right? And so th there's something and you, you know, I try not to, <laughs> I live in my head, and so I can feed a thought, but um, yeah. I think what we take in, I mean, that obviously, to me, it's obvious that that has some transference. What I appreciate about materials is that they don't lie. They mean something. People touch them, imbue memories, pass on methods, create cultures and niches, express emotions, build communities, build worlds. And there are so many different directions that we could go here. Do we delve into the history of liquor and how it was used to barter, exploit, profit, and control? Do we unearth the myriad ways spirits have been used for thousands of years, medicinally, as ritual, as a coping mechanism? The answer is always yes. If we can take time to understand the materials around us, the history, the culture, the language, and the implications of that material, we're closer to understanding the way the world has worked and the way it can work, what our place in it is, how we can engage in our reality in a more human, whole way. The balancing act we can play is embracing history with open arms, living our lives with intention and force, 
and being in the present moment with the people we care about. And if a toast helps us be in the present moment, I'll cheers to that. I think one of the greatest maybe evolutions of my of my of my palate or of my drinking career um, was coming around to Agricole as a style of rum. And Agricole was established as a a method of rum production that only uses the freshest of, of the cane juice. Like as soon as the reed is cut in those massive quantities, there's this massive pressing on this like sweet reedy grass. Mm. All that juice that comes out is fermented and distilled and you get agricole rum. Mm. Of course, most rum producing nations are situated equatorially in the global south where most of the labor that produces it is black and brown. Uh, so in the spirit of, uh, of consulting with Restaurant Opportunities Center, the, the restaurant um, that we have in mind will be called Colors. We're opening in the Fruit Vale. I want to have an approachable menu, provocative. The title cocktail for the opening menu is called Black because um, it contains all colors. And I denigrated Agricole Rum. Um, Agricole is the DOC as established by French colonialists in, place like, in places like the West Indies, especially Martinique. But I like this idea of denigrating something that comes off of the still bright white and super pure, and I infuse it with activated charcoal and make it inky black, right? And then, um, and I'm using a, a Martinican rum. We use um, coconut milk and um, aquafaba off of chickpea, so that it's inherently vegan, but it meringues like an egg white. A little bit of lime juice and this really bizarre vermouth called vermouth negre. And this cocktail was inspired originally by a cocktail um, called the Wretched of the Earth, which is named uh, for Franz Fanon's um, seminal work about the psychological experience of being subjugated and how it promotes mental unhealth. I began to see these parallels between their recipe building process and a studio practice with mixed media collage. There's a term in the art world called assemblage. It's actually coined from Robert Rauschenberg, um, but it's basically when an artist takes all these different materials, all these different source materials, and they kind of marinate and they sit with them. And then they construct this piece of art from fabric, a tire, a stuffed goat. I mean, it can be anything. Um, and then it begins to be this like creation of a world that the viewer is then immersed in. And I felt like Redwood was was creating these assemblages in the form of drinks. The vibe you're feeling, maybe even today, like what's your favorite drink right now? Uh, um, yeah, I think lately it's been gin martinis with the with the um, with the olive in a twist. But last week I brought the last little bit of the of the active the activated charcoal infused agricole home and I made and I really hope no one takes liberties with this because it's intentional AF and I have to be cautious about this but I made the best blackeries of my like they were just perfect wow. you know they were like like that shimmering black and they had um, you know that that foamy head and um, yeah, there's a there's a, there's an aroma to agricole that transports you. Mm. Yeah. Where were you transported? Uh, um, 
<laughs> I've never been to a sugarcane field, but I was transported somewhere coastal with salinity and um, and like some kind of minerally earth. Mm. There, there was no, uh, we weren't surrounded by land wherever we were. I really like the idea of these materials being like, like since you can, they're aromatic or like since you know that they're tied to a specific place, like that it can transport you. I mean, I think that's really cool. And that's legit. That's, that's what terroir is and everything that we imbibe, you mm -hmm. know? Like that's the, it's the story of the place, mm -hmm. right? I think the earth would have had, she would have had like more than enough for all of us if it wasn't about who can take it all right. I started to allow myself to like be unabashedly inspired by um, my personal understanding of this like, of this anthropological context and, and the implications of what it means to, you know, to colonize the world one bottle at a time, and how that shifts what it means to drink responsibly for me. The practice of understanding palate and taste is really just a practice of memory and strengthening your memory. I mean, what would it be like, especially because this is our word maker and it's also our taste haver, like what would it be like for me to, to talk about what I taste as fluently as I'm, you know, just talking to you. And I, I think tasting is such an interesting nuance to, to recipe building and making drinks because, yeah, when we're in, when I'm in the instructor course with the rock class, which is usually comprised almost entirely of people of color, and when we get to the wine tasting section or when, when, when I give folks a spirit like this rum to taste and we're both and we're all engaging with it for the first time, the timidity with which folks approach to not tasting the thing, because that's never the thing, but talking about what they're tasting and attaching it to something that is familiar to them, which has to be tied to a memory. It's, 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 it's like the most daunting task to get it wrong. How can you get a memory wrong? Like, there isn't. And I, but I remember feeling that. I remember right. tasting with wine reps and being like, what do you mean when you say this red wine is austere or slutty? I don't understand those terms. Here's another touch point where identity and the boxes we check either by our own standards or by society standards acts as a powerful influence on us. It's so clear that identity politics impact our relationships not just with one another, but with materials. And a relationship to a material is also a relationship with ourselves, our senses, our perception of the world, our memories. And so when a group of people experience timidity around a material, or any experience really, that is an indicator of inequity. Because creative practices and our understanding of our own senses that is an essential part of our humanity. I had um, this most recent advanced bartending course taste for net for the first time, and they were like, nah, this is medicine, this is gross. For net, there's an hour in Italy, and blah, blah, it's called Fernet Hours. It's an Amaro that is, has historically been used um, as a digestive, something that helps you process your meal, offers you a moment of reflection, and really gets the juices working. Bronca has some Latin or yeah. Italian relationship to bronchial. The ones, yeah. But it was just us tying that together 
them understanding that it was legitimately used for medicine. They were like, oh, I actually don't think it tastes that bad. Then we take something like Fernet and we figure out ways to manipulate flavor and balance. And then we can find our way to a cinnamon toast crunch cocktail, you know? And that, and that is when I really like had some fool's attention, you know, cause they were. When we engage in a creative practice, we can start expanding our understanding of sensation. And that expansion can lead to living life more fully. If I have, if I have the privilege of choice and I also have the responsibility of it. And like when I start to, when I start to establish a point of view, I think that that has a relationship with me, like trying to be present enough to invite all that accrual, all that memory to the moment, you know, where I'm trying something new. Yeah, I like the idea of, of trying something new and not knowing what it's going to taste like, but having, it's almost, it's very vulnerable. Yeah. Like, you have to be vulnerable to the fact that, like, you don't know what this is going to be. Mm. And if you open your mouth and say something, quote unquote, stupid, like, just roll with it. But what's stupid about drinking alcohol besides the act of <laughs> drinking mean... alcohol? <laughs> I mean. Redwood explains her process to me. She starts with a feeling, a dream, a thesis, inspired by literature, history, culture. She's also a visual artist. So first she draws the drink in her mind, in her sketchbook. Then she begins listening to what combinations of ingredients speak to her. The tinkering begins, and soon she is tasting, testing, tweaking. She builds a recipe, an assemblage rather, that speaks to the senses and even transports. Redwood is an artist who is not only conscious of the power of history in shaping the ingredients and ways of preparing drinks. She's also a creator who is in tune with the present moment. Dynamics at the restaurant or the gig where she's working. Dynamics between herself and the folks on the other side of the bar. Needs can be anticipated without having that exclusive, that air of exclusivity. Like people aren't as though like folks aren't invited to learn and specifically that part. I think the delineation between fronts of and backs of houses in restaurants, you're already, it's already a problem. Right. Like that's a, re, that's a institution, a yeah. reinstalling of this, of this framework that was extremely hurtful and problematic and rooted mm. in slavery. Um, and there you, you see less of those divisions, mm. you know? Yeah. And when we think about some of the like top three problems in the restaurant industry, it's definitely hierarchy. It's um, tip allocation, it's livable waging. The craft cocktail is not just a drink to be guzzled or a placeholder for problems. It's an artistic expression, a performance, a poetic point of resistance, and in Redwood's case, an opportunity for connection. Okay. Should I make you a drink now? Or? I love that. I mean, we could, I can keep talking forever, yeah. so. I Dude. After yeah. our interview, we went up to the roof. Redwood made a round of her old fashions for us. It was thrilling. And not just because this was the closest thing to a social function I had experienced during these two months of quarantine. She poured our drinks. Okay, beloved. Cheers. Thank you. The It's what? Et moi. Salud. And then we raised our glasses in celebration. It's such a dainty portion size. It's a tasting Ooh. portion oh, for we're just tasting. <laughs> <laughs> There's more drinks coming. Uh-huh. Yeah, we were <laughs> I took a sip of the old fashioned and felt a familiar combination of tastes I know and love so well. 
For those of you who don't know what an old-fashioned tastes like, it is bourbon, bitters, some form of sugar, citrus, and typically cherries. Although there's lots of different recipes, there's different types of old-fashions over the years that have evolved. I don't know how Redwood knew this, but old fashions are my drink of choice, whether I'm making a cocktail at home or ordering one at a bar. My family drinks them in honor of my grandfather, who always had one while listening to old records and toasting to our family. With the familiar taste of bourbon, bitters, sugar, citrus, and stone fruit, memories came into focus in soft, delightful layers. And even though it was kind of chilly up there with the sun setting over the lake, my body felt warm. Memories of toasting to my grandfather, the emotions associated with my loud and wonderful family. <laughs> a scrappy quarantine version of the drink I'd had a few weeks ago with maple syrup, sipped while dancing late into the night with my housemate during a virtual dance party. The taste of muddled blueberries in a version I enjoyed at a good friend's wedding years ago back on the East Coast in Maine. The sweet, slightly weaker ones my dad makes for my mom after dinner. An elegant one that I drank alone in a bar in San Francisco, comfortably observing the world around me. I took just a few extra seconds to let the taste of those chocolate bitters linger. Redwood, Asher, and Tiffany talked and laughed. Wind rushed over my face, and the sun bowed low over Lake Merritt. Now, when I enjoy my next old-fashioned, I've got another sweet memory layered into that first sip. What moments do we slow down? And who do we want to slow them down with? What rituals do we embed in our daily lives? What coping mechanisms have we developed and why? There is sort of a terrible beauty when it comes to materials because materials don't lie. When you commit to exploring a material fully, you're not only met face-to-face -face with the vulnerabilities, the dreams, the desires of the individual working with the material, you're also committing to discovering where it comes from. In our world, that's not so simple. With craft cocktails, there is the performative aspect. The dynamics of the bar. The ambiance. The relationships. <laughs> then there's the assemblage, the recipe building, the collage, the sensory play. There is culture, the origin story of the materials and the various players who created them, traded them, exploited them, reclaimed them. There is a point of connection where the maker tenderly portions out the drink, hands you your glass. And if you are fortunate to be in good company, you lock eyes, hold still, and savor the moment just before you drink. And whether you take that time to remember the past or honor the present or bless the future, that time is precious. And so to those of you listening who are sheltering in place, I invite you to make a drink of your choice, alcoholic or not, and raise your glass. Hey, hey, make eye contact. You know what they say. So here's to you. Here's to understanding our history to sitting with the present moment in all of its complexities. To the future, I think with all of our superpowers combined is going to be worth raising a glass to. 
I think with all of our superpowers combined is going to be worth raising a glass to. Yes, yes, yes. Salute, salute, salute. Cheers to moments in time. Cheers to more life. Cheers to just having the experience to live even though we're in quarantine. I'm still grateful. I'm still here and I'm still breathing, so... More life, more life. Cheers. Hi, Catherine. It is 6.45 on Friday night. It's a little late for my 5 o'clock old-fashioned, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do and drink your 5 o'clock old-fashioned at 6.45 sometimes. So in honor of Grandpa Durr, cheers to a beautiful family. Love you. Bye. This is a toast to Grandpa Durr. Yasu. Yahoo. To my dear friend and college roommate, who happens to be your mom, as soon as this crisis is over, we will get together and share a drink. In the meantime, stay safe. Love you. Wouldn't it be nice if I could pour myself inside your head, fill Underscores in this episode include works by Liz Delise, as well as MSFX, and loops by PAX11 and Yellow Tree. I get a lot of my extra sounds from freesound.org, which is a great resource for podcasters. Special thanks to guest Redwood Hill and my housemate Tiffany Patton of Real Food Media, who introduced us. To learn more about Redwood, the Restaurant Opportunity Center, and their new restaurant, Colors, coming to the Fruitvale neighborhood soon, go to www.materialfeelspodcast.com. I'm already looking forward to our next adventure, where we'll be exploring a material that, depending on how aware we are, we all work with every day. 
It's a material that is essential, complex, layered, and always in motion. We'll be speaking with a creative who spends hours tracing tensions, listening deeply, and working out the kinks.